Well, our family uh, enjoys sports, and one of the reasons we like sports is because it's, it's unscripted drama. You know, you, you, can't make the, the, you can't make this stuff up, these things that happen. And, it, and, and, and so often, it is um, great drama. My favorite moment in sports is when a team who really has no business winning, their back is against the wall, it appears as though they're, 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 they're dead, right, in this game. They somehow find a way to fight and claw their way back into the game and pull off the upset win in dramatic fashion. A couple of games like this come to mind. The Iron Bowl in 2013, Auburn playing Alabama, number one Alabama, right? They're always number one. They're, they're playing number one Alabama. There's one second left on the clock. And it seems as though Alabama's in the driver's seat. They're setting up for a field goal. It's a long field goal, but, you know, it's Alabama. They'll probably make it. And they uh, kick the field goal. It's online. Everything looks right. And then it falls just short of the field goal post. And, to the surprise of everyone, into the arms of an Auburn receiver who receives it at the very back of the end zone and runs all the way back for a touchdown. Auburn wins, right? Dramatic fashion. Another example of this would be the Boston Red Sox in the 2004 American League Championship Series. No team has come back from being down 3-0, and the Red Sox were. They lost the night before, 19-8, right, just destroyed. And for Red Sox, we were actually living in Boston at the time. There was just this, oh, again, 86 years, and the Yankees, they just keep winning, keep winning, keep winning. And guess what happens in extra innings in game four? They come back. The Red Sox come back and win. And then they win again. And then they win again. And then they win again. And they, they, they go on to take it. And then they go on to take the World Series. Unscripted drama. You can't make this stuff up. And what you see in both Auburn and the Red Sox is, in a sense, life out of death, isn't it? It seems they have no business winning. They're not going to do it. And they emerge victorious. We humans have a rival, and that rival is called death. And it's kind of hard to even call it a rival enemy. Um, the scriptures speak of it as an enemy. But, you know, a rival is somebody that you sort of have some sort of, like, at least ability to win. But we can't beat death. Death wins every time. The one thing that you are guaranteed when you're born into this world is that you will die. Fact. Death. The enemy, it's, it's an inevitability, death is. And we humans, from the dawn of time, have been obsessed with this enemy of death. You remember uh, the Egyptians that we looked at? Think about the Egyptians and their massive tombs, right? It's, it, it, it's an expression of their preoccupation with death and dying. Think about the Epic of Gilgamesh, this ancient Babylonian tale that tells the stories wrestling with death. Major theme. And for us in our own culture, we do everything we can to kind of get death out of, out of our view. Like it's trash at Disney. Just like, oh, well, let's take care of that. We don't want that in our, in our purview because, because it's bad. But, it, but, but we can't avoid it. It comes. It comes to us all. Death does. Now, this passage, Jesus, that we just read... Jesus is doing his seventh sign. He does seven signs in the Gospel of John, and this is his seventh one. It's his greatest. And Jesus says, regarding death, not so fast. You think you're, the, you think you're victorious? You think you're the, the one that wins every time? Jesus says, 
in my economy, not so fast. So we're going to consider that this morning. We've got three points, three headings. The players, the pain, and the preview are the three points. The players, the pain, and the preview. So Jesus, in our passage this morning, he arrives to a very defeated crowd. They've just witnessed the death of Lazarus. And they're mourning, and they're, we- they're weeping. They've been beaten by death, the death of Lazarus. And he's been there, he's been in his tomb for four days. And many Jews have, have gathered around Mary and Martha, the brothers or the sisters of, of Lazarus, and they are consoling the family, they're consoling them. And it says, look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And these are the two players that I want to focus on in this story: Mary and Martha. Now, this is the first encounter that we've seen in John's gospel, but we see them in other places in Scripture, in Luke's gospel. For example, you may remember that the, the, uh, Jesus is in their home, and Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus, listening, learning, taking Jesus in. And Martha, do you remember what she's doing? Well, she's busy running around, playing host, trying to make sure Jesus is happy. She's a little irritated that Mary, her sister, would just be sitting around while she's doing all the work. Remember what Jesus says, says regarding this whole situation? Mary's chosen the better to sit, sit at my feet, to be with me and to hear me. Well, here, Martha is true to form, right? She's on the move. She's on the go. She's an action woman, right? Mary seems to be a bit more reflective. Martha's on the move. And so she goes out and she finds Jesus and Mary much like the last time, she remains seated in, in the house. And we'll see what happens. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So that's the exchange with Martha. Now I want us to look now at Mary. So Martha, verse 28, Martha goes back to the house and calls Mary and says to her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when when, when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come in the village. He's He's still outside where he met Martha. In verse 32, Mary comes to him and says, she fell at his feet and she says to him the same thing that Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing. Now, let's think about these Mary and Martha as sort of types of people. Maybe you resonate with one of them. Maybe you think, I'm kind of like Mary. I I tend to do a little bit more sitting, a little more introverted perhaps, a little more reflective. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm more like Martha, like I'm a go-getter. I like to be on the move. I like to be busy. I like to act, right? And here's here's what I want us to see that's interesting. In each of these moments, in Luke's gospel, where Mary is blessed for her sitting at the feet of Jesus in the house, 
and where Martha shows more hope, doesn't she? Did you see what she says? They both agree that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But look at Martha's response. Mary sort of gives up at that point. That's the end. That's all she says. But what does Martha say with a, bit, with a little uh, ring of hope to it? But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you Jesus. I know that you can turn this situation around, Martha says. She exhibits faith and hope that we don't see exhibited in Mary in this particular moment. And here's the thing I want us to, to think about for a moment. What is it that makes Mary shine in Luke's gospel and makes Martha shine here in John's gospel? They're both kind of doing what they do. Mary's sitting in the house at the feet of Jesus in one, and Martha's on the move. Here's the difference, or here's the thing, the, the, the common denominator. Their proximity to Jesus. That's what it is. Mary's doing the right thing sitting at the feet of Jesus because she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha here is doing the right thing, running out to meet Jesus, because that's where Jesus is. He's outside the house. So she runs to him. The, the defining characteristic, the thing worth emulating in each of these women is their proximity and nearness to Jesus. That's the difference. And here's the thing. We think, our, our culture tends to think that life with Jesus, oh, that'll constrain you. That, that'll reduce you. That will confine you. You spend too much time with Jesus, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do, live the life you want to live, because there's like rules and there's things that you have to do. That's not the case at all. Spending time with Jesus actually brings out the depth of our humanity. He is the, the true, the one, the God-man. He's the image of God, perfectly displayed. Spending time with him makes us more human, not less human, not more constrained, Right? The Marys of the world, as they've spent time with Jesus and reflecting at Jesus' feet and pondering uh, what Jesus has to say about life, they, there is a rich Christian philosophical tradition that has been built from a bunch of people spending time with Jesus. St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards. If that's your thing... There's plenty there for you. Maybe you're more like Martha. Maybe you're an active person. Active people, active Christians that have spent time with Jesus. Guess what they've done? They've built hospitals. They've built orphanages. They ended the slave trade in the 18th century. Christians spending time with Jesus that had a more active orientation have done a great thing for the world. And Christians that have been more reflective and more introspective have also done great things for the world. Maybe you're more artistic. We've got that. Like Christians that have spent time with Jesus have built incredible cathedrals, beautiful things, painted beautiful. Go spend time in Florence. See the fruits of, of artists who were shaped, who spent time with Jesus. Some of the best of all the world, all the world has created can be derived from people spending time with Jesus. He doesn't restrict your humanity. He pulls it out. He draws it out. The Christian call is that Christ, as he calls us, he stretches us across the full range of human experience. And you will find your life precisely because you're looking outside yourself, right? The culture says, look in. You have within you the resources you need to get, get along in life. Look within. But think about it. If, you, if you're looking in all the time, you're not going to change at all. 
Because you're, you, you're, it's self-referential. You, you don't change with that. But if you look outside yourself, you become deeper as a human. Stretched and deepened. And, and I want you to notice something, too, about Martha here. Look, look at how she comes to him. He, Jesus says, and I'm gonna, we're going to explain this later, but um, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, this is verse 25, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha, he says? And look at Martha's reply. Yes, Lord, I believe, I believe that you are the Christ. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite sure about everything you just said there, but yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah. A little bit, that kind of went over my head. But remember, remember what we said last week? It's not the quality or the sophistication of your faith that saves you. It's the object. And, and, and Martha is, is throwing her, her, her life, her faith, her trust upon the person, Jesus. Now, so that's the players, Mary and Martha, and kind of how they differ in these, in these different passages. Let's now consider the pain, the second point. Now, last week, one of the big questions for us was, why did Jesus wait? Because he learns of, La- he, he's, he loves, uh, he, he learns of Lazarus's sickness, and, and rather than uh, fire up the heavenly ambulance and rush to the rescue, he waits for two days. And the question is, why would he wait? If he loves, the- verse 5 of chapter 11, you can look at it if you've got your Bible, he loves this family. He really loves them, John is saying. He really loves this family. So why wait? Does he not care? No, he cares. Maybe he does care, but he's kind of cold and he's kind of heartless. And that's not it either. God, we, we see right here in this, in this section that God is not indifferent to your pain, to our pain. He's not. Look, look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. There's, there's weeping all around. And Jesus has asked, where have you laid Lazarus? And they say, come and see. Not because they have any hope, but because they want Jesus to witness the fact of Lazarus' death. That here's a dead man buried in a tomb. The inevitability of it. Right? The, the, sense, the, the sense that they have, that we all have at funerals and times of loss, that death is an inevitability. And it, don't, don't, don't we kind of view it this way? I mean, think about in an effort to console, we might say things like, well, death is a natural part of life. It's a natural part of life. And our little Christian theological radar should go ding, ding, ding. No, it's not, a, it's not a natural part of life. Death is an enemy invader. It's an enemy invader. The only problem is we can't defeat the enemy. And again, Jesus is saying, slow down, not so fast. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So, um, verse 35. This is the shortest verse in all the Bible right here. What does it say? Jesus wept. Jesus is pained by death. It is right to weep at loss and death. It's right to hate it. It's right to mourn over it. Jesus does here. And he's about to raise him from the dead. But he weeps because it's right. But not with a spirit of resignation. 
right? The crowds are, are weeping with the spirit in a spirit of resignation. Oh, we, we, another one bites the dust, and it's over. It's done. The crowds see it that way. Look, some, look at what they say in response, verse 36 and 37. Some say, oh, he's weeping. See how he loved Lazarus. And others, more cynical and, and kind of jaded about it all, said, well, I mean, he gave the blind sight. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? I said that this is the last of seven signs. Every sign points to something. It gives a preview of something. And this, this is certainly the case with this sign. And that brings us to our third and final point, the preview of this passage of Scripture. In the Christian economy, death is not an inevitability. It's not an inevitability, but it's an enemy, and it's an enemy that Jesus came to defeat. This is, this is the remarkable thing. You know, last week we wondered about the timing of it. Why is Jesus waiting? Why is he just, does he just not want to deal with this problem? And we said, no, he says he's waiting so that the glory of God might be put on display. And we see it here in these, these verses too. Jesus is waiting so that we can see a preview of what's to come, not just from, for Lazarus, but for all of humanity, for all of creation. And that is that death has no power. Death is not an unconquerable foe. It has been slayed. It has been put to death. But first, I want us to just consider Jesus' claim in verse 23, what he says, the thing that Martha didn't quite understand. What does he say? He says, verse 23 to, to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she's looking forward to the, very, the resurrection at the end of time. That's when Lazarus will come back. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a big claim. I mean, what, what if I just went around and telling you guys, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. I mean, you're crazy to make that claim, aren't you? Uh, and the people would be right to say, this guy is crazy, and maybe walk off. But see, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't, you know, it's tempting for us to think that maybe these ancient people were just not quite as sharp as we are. They maybe didn't understand things as well. They were a little less, like, evolved maybe. And you know, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery, right? Looking back on the people of the past as though they were, like, somehow dumb or something. That's not it. In fact, they were more acquainted with death than we are, right? They, they, they witnessed it every day. They were very acquainted with death. They knew what death did. They knew that people didn't come back from the dead. So Jesus makes this claim, and they're, they're wondering. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He gives them a sign to support, to make true what he's saying. He doesn't just pull this claim out of nowhere and not demonstrate the the possibility that it's true. He gives a sign. And John says that's the whole point of these signs. He did them to point to the fact that he is life, and you can find life in Christ. John, John tells us in chapter 20, verses 30 and following, he says, Jesus did a lot of other signs in the presence of his disciples, which I did not record here. But these seven, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So Martha places her hope in the future resurrection of the dead, which is good Jewish theology. Good job, Martha. But what Jesus tells her in response is this, and Frederick uh, Bruner paraphrases it this way. He says, the resurrection that you're talking about at the end, I am that resurrection. I am that life. And I am that last day here and now. I am the future broken into the present. That's what Jesus is saying. I, you, you see me, and you're getting a preview, a sneak peek, a trailer of what will happen at the end of time. That's what this is. This is a preview of the eschaton. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. Br- Bruner again says, Jesus makes the future present, hope visible, the then now, and the thing a person. Now, imagine Terry Francona, the Boston Red Sox uh, coach, in, beginning, before that last game where they come back from behind the win, they're down 3-0, says, hey guys, I got a good feeling. We're going to win this one, and we're going to win the next you know, four. We're going to run the next three after it, and then we're going to win the World Series. Now that, that, That's a strong claim to make. Or the Auburn coach in the huddle, you guys got this. They're going to miss it. It's going to be short. We're going to run it back for a touchdown. We got this. Strong claims, right? Jesus, Lazarus has fallen to an enemy that no one can conquer. But Jesus is saying, What has happened here is not the final word on the matter. Death is not God. I am God. And I am alive. And I can bring life to that which I desire. And so, verse 38, Jesus says, actually, verse 39, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And the conventional understanding at the time was that a person, their soul would kind of linger, hover for three days after their death, and maybe would re-enter, maybe there was hope. But once that process of decay started, they started to stink, then the spirit you know, was, went else, it, it departed. So she's saying, he's been dead for four days. Like, he is dead. No doubt about it. And Jesus said to her, Didn't I, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Just like he said last week. The timing is all for the glory of God. And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I want, I want you to see really what, what is happening here. Let's, let's just let's broaden our scope for a second. Think about the scriptures as a whole. Jesus is sometimes described or considered a second Moses because Moses spoke of a prophet that would come after him, that would be greater than him. And so let's think about Moses for a second. Moses is walking around, God's called man, 
called by God at the burning bush, and he is calling the people of Egypt to let his people go. And to the degree that they refuse, Moses is unleashing, we'll just call it unleashing hell on them. he's, He's accelerating the effects of sin in the world. He slays the river, the life source for, the, for all of Egypt, and it turns to blood, and the whole river dies. It's slain. It's a god, and he slays it, Moses does. And what happens when a river dies? Well, it, 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 frogs emerge from the river because they have no life. Flies start growing. Uh, disease starts spreading because there's just, just a river of death. It, it's, it's no longer life. It's death. And what all of these plagues are, are what they are, is it's Moses accelerating the natural breakdown of sin in the world. He's speeding up sin. He's putting it on overdrive. That's what he's doing. And here we see the second Moses, Jesus, walking around doing signs, much like Moses. But what is he doing? Is he accelerating the effects of sin in the world? No, he's, he's reversing the effects of sin in the world. He's healing the sick. He's causing the lame to walk. He's feeding the hungry, 5,000 of them. He's walking on water. He's giving sight to the blind. And now for the the great final act, he's bringing the dead back to life. He's reversing the curse. He's reversing the effects of sin in the world. That's what he's doing. And he simply commands Lazarus to come out. And Lazarus can't refuse not to. I mean, he has to. It's the same voice that created him in the world, speaking into nothing, into the void of a dead tomb and bringing forth life from that tomb. Some have said that he, he specifies Lazarus because if he didn't, any dead people within earshot would all be bursting forth out of their graves. Right? That's what we're talking about. That's the life that issues forth from Christ. And so here's the claim. Death is an enemy, not an inevitability. And it has been defeated. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This This story here gives us a preview. It gives us a sneak peek of what Christ came to do. That death is a real enemy. And and though it seems like it wins every time, it's going to be conquered. Christ will conquer it. It loses when Christ enters the scene. And here's the thing. Here's what nobody saw coming at this point. The way in which death is finally defeated is through a death. The death of the living God. Christ's atoning death on a cross is what brings life, new life, new creation, resurrected life to all the world, all of creation. That's the way. And it's hard for them to get that. It's hard even for us to get it. We said last week, your growth in Christ is a death and resurrection every day, every hour as you repent. Repentance is a death, turning from your sin. But Christian economy, there's always new life on the other side of death. That's how it works. There's resurrected life. Dying to self, living to others, living to Christ. That's the pattern. And here's the thing. This news, this, the news of this, this, this preview that we get here, 
transformed the world. It changed the course of the world of human history. There's a French philosopher named Luc Ferry, I think is how you pronounce it. I don't know how you pronounce it. I probably totally butchered that. But he, he wrote an uh, international bestseller summarizing philosoph- all of philosophy. It's kind of a survey of philosophy. Bestseller. It's incredible. But he takes up the question, how do, you, how do you explain the move from Greek philosophy and thought in the classical tradition to a Christian tradition in the West? How do you explain that? And he's a non-Christian trying to explain. He says, here's the difference. The Greek philosophy, for all of its sophistication, could not handle the question of death. What happens when people die? And Christianity comes along, and it's got a compelling answer to that question. And that's why a whole civilization embraced Christ. Because of the preview, because of Christ conquering death. And just to kind of locate this within our own tradition, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it, it asks the question, what is sanctification? So uh, what, what was sanctification? What is, how do you grow more Christ-like? How do you grow up as a Christian, grow in the faith? That's the question. And, it, and the answer is this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new into the image of God. And we are made more and more able to become dead to sin, to die to sin, and to become alive to righteousness. Dying to sin, living to righteousness in, in, in repentance. Dying to sin, turning from it, dying to it, turning to Christ, and finding life. This is, this is our life. Every hour, every day. Turning from sin, dying to it, finding new life in Christ. And as we do that, as we spend time with Jesus, he, he doesn't just deepen our humanity. He saves us. He saves us from death. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your good news that you came and everything you did demonstrated that the world, that you, the creator, are good. That you extend life, not destruction and devastation. That you extend grace. That you're making a way for sinners to find salvation in you. And so we pray that as this window, this opportunity is open for people to turn in faith and find salvation in you, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would speak through uh, the work of Christians, speak through the power of your word to draw people in, to find their life in you, and that they would find ongoing new created life as they are transformed more into the image of Jesus. Help us to believe these things. And again, we pray for your spirit to be at work in our midst. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.